Well, let's turn our attention to God's Word. We're continuing our study of First Peter chapter 2, uh, today looking at verses 24 and 25. And remember, uh, Isaiah 53, have that hanging in the back of your mind as we read this. Uh, it says here in God's Word, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God bless in reading and hearing of his word to us today. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, Do this in remembrance of me. Of course, the Lord's death, or the Lord's table, proclaims the Lord's death until he comes, as he said when he instituted it. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, we want to remember Christ and proclaim his death on the cross and the significance of it. It just so happens that the verses before us in our study, this is where we are in the study uh, of 1 Peter, are, are just the right fit for this purpose, God's providence. Now, early in the service, as we've noted, we read Isaiah 53. And where, when Peter was writing this letter, 1 Peter, uh, he certainly either had in his mind or probably in his hand uh, a copy of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 53, because he is practically quoting it here, you back up to verse 22, all the way through 25. And he's pointing us to Jesus here the suffering servant we read about in Isaiah 53. Now as we look at these verses, I want to break them down uh, into three points. I want to talk about what Jesus did. I want to talk about, secondly, why Jesus did it. And then thirdly, the results of what Jesus did. And this will help us all, as we come to the Lord's table, to remember Christ and to proclaim his death. Now first, let's look at verse 24, where it tells us here what Jesus did. It says there in the first half of verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus bore the sins of his people on the cross. He took them on himself. And the significance of what Jesus did on the cross can be better understood with a bit of knowledge of the Old Testament sacrificial system that was given to the people of God through Moses. Probably the most important thing to understand about that is that the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed forward to and was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Time will not allow us to survey all the ways the sacrificial system points us to Christ, but I'll, I'm going to give you one example that helps us reflect upon the significance of Christ's death in reference to this verse we're looking at today. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. In Leviticus 16, it describes for us there the high holy day of atonement. Uh, it's several sacrifices are described there. There's a bull, there's goats, there's ram. But one of those goats was not actually sacrificed. One goat was designated as the scapegoat. That's a term we use today, scapegoat, and it's a term that comes from the Bible. And not a lot of people who use the term scapegoat know that 
that term comes from the Bible, and they're speaking of biblical things when they talk about scapegoats. But that's where it comes from. A lot of our sayings come from the Bible. But here's what it says in Leviticus 16. Uh, Aaron, the high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, when we talk about a scapegoat today, we talk about someone who you know, probably didn't do anything wrong, but yet they, they take the blame for it. They're singled out. Here's the person to blame, even though they're not really the person to blame. They're just the scapegoat. Well, we see where it comes from. Here's a goat, but the sins of all of Israel were placed upon the head of that goat. And Aaron confessed all the sins, all the sins of Israel. You know, we talk about confessing our sins, as the confession says, our particular sins particularly. And I think that's what Aaron was doing here. I mean, it probably took a long time when you talk about all the people of Israel and all their sins. Maybe he used general terms, but there's a long list of general sins that human beings can commit. And he places those on the head of that goat and is sent off away from the people. Now Jesus, of course, here, uh, this is pointing to him. Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat. He took the sins of his people to the cross and he received the blame, the guilt, and the punishment. The punishment of being abandoned by God, of receiving God's just wrath for our sins. And subsequently, he died the death we deserve to die. He was he didn't deserve any of those things. He was, as the writer uh, uh, as Isaiah wrote in his prophecy, there was no deceit in his mouth. He was completely innocent, but he was a scapegoat. He bore the wrath for our sins and died the death that we deserve to die. The result is that we are forgiven because he paid the debt for our sin. As Paul puts it in a wonderful verse in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he, the Father, made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And back to Isaiah 53, where it says, and you can see the terminology that Peter's picking up, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And then verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. That's the language that Isaiah uses, that Peter uses. So Jesus bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now notice how this verse begins. He himself bore our sins. It's a, an emphasis there. He could have just said he bore our sins on the cross, but he says he himself bore our sins on the cross. He did it himself. He did it alone, more alone than anyone will ever know because he was completely forsaken by the Father. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by the, by the uh, Father, something that he had never experienced in the Trinity, which we can't fully understand, but an eternity of perfect fellowship within the persons of the Trinity, 
at the cross, that was, he was separated from that relationship, something that he had never known. Now, even the most evil human being living on planet Earth has never experienced complete abandonment by God. Because even the person in the darkest places on earth enjoys the good things that this earth has to offer, the goodness of creation, God's grace that overflows in creation. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. You know, you, you read that verse and you think, well, that's not a good thing. You know, you think of the Snoopy character where the clouds are always over, pig pen, I guess, and or, or someone in the comics who's always got a rain cloud and it's raining on their head. No, like today, we got this rain. Nobody's really complaining about it because we've been in a drought. It's great to have some rain, even though we might not want so much at once. But we needed it. And the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Everyone benefits. Our grass and crops will grow now because of the rain. It's a blessing from God. Even the most evil person in the world enjoys that from God. The common, common grace is what theologians call that. But Jesus, when he died on the cross, and what we remember today in his death, we remember that he alone is the one who bore our sins. No one else did it for us, and he did it alone. Now also notice in this verse the word tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Peter doesn't use the word cross here, but he also does not actually use the word tree. We've translated it tree for a purpose, for a reason, but this word is a, is a word that indicates an object made out of wood or out of a tree. And the context usually tells you what it is uh, in the Bible that the word used here is also used for a club. Uh, people came to get Jesus and they were carrying this word. Wooden cross, it was a club. But something made out of wood. Peter doesn't use the word for tree because Jesus was not crucified on a tree. But he doesn't use the word for cross. Of course, that's what Jesus was crucified on because he wants to point us to something. Peter is calling to, the, to mind the idea communicated in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And this is a, a law that God laid out for the people of Israel. It says, if a man has committed a, a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God, shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And of course, when we read the Gospels, this text is quoted because they refused to leave Jesus hanging on the tree uh, because it was the Sabbath and they didn't want to be there overnight, so forth and so on. But Jesus here, Peter here, is telling us about Jesus that he was cursed by God. He uses that word that means something made out of wood to point us to a tree and to remind us of Deuteronomy 21, that Jesus was that cursed man that was hung on a tree. Jesus bore the curse for his people. He was cursed so that we might be blessed. At the Lord's table, we hear his words. This bread is my body, which is for you. The bread signifies his body, 
that body that bore our sins on the tree. His body that bore sin's curse for us on the cross. May we remember that today, what Jesus has done by dying on the cross for us. Now, secondly, that's what Jesus did, just a little, little bit of what Jesus did there. Why did Jesus do it? Well, the second part of verse 24 tells us, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, when it says we might die to sin, it doesn't mean that there's a possibility that true Christians are not dead to sin. The Bible makes it clear that when we become Christians, we are dead to sin. But he means that his death makes, it, makes, it, uh, makes our death to sin a certainty where it wasn't a certainty before. By his death, it is now possible that we will die to sin. It wasn't a certainty before without Jesus' death. It was not a possibility before without Jesus' death. Another way you can translate this is, is he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. That we, might, that we having died to sin, might live to righteousness. Both ways you translate it are true. When Jesus died for your sins he, on the cross, he freed you from the dominating power of sin. Sin is no longer your master's. Not only does he take away the guilt of your sin, he also takes away the power that it has over you. But we continue to struggle with our sins day to day. And because of what Jesus did, freeing us from the power of sins, it is now possible for us to die to sin to put it out of our lives, to, as the Puritans uh, said, mortify it, kill it. Because of what Jesus did, it's possible now for us to change. That wasn't a possibility really before. We can become more righteous in practice, become more like Jesus, more holy, because of what he did on the cross. Paul says it this way, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We're freed from sin. It's no longer our master. But thanks be to God that you, were once, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been, having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness to the modern ear doesn't sound very enticing, does it? Because sin is attractive to us, even as Christians. There are certain sins to which each of us are drawn. And we don't want to die to those sins. But Paul goes on to explain something to us. He says, when you are slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. And that's what we forget sometimes. These sins that we love, they are not good for us. It's not promoting life or our best interests. He goes on to say, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can have that life, that righteousness, because Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. So what we're remembering here at the Lord's table is, is that he has forgiven us through the shedding of his blood and he bore our sins in his body to free us from sin 
and declare and make us righteous in His sight. But we need strength for the fight because it's not easy. And the table strengthens us. You think of the disciples in the upper room. You know, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, um, they were physically there with Jesus. There was Jesus, and they were having a meal. They were sitting together. You think of all that went on in that that evening. This is described for us in the Gospels. They had the, the most intimate fellowship with Jesus. There's nothing more intimate than sharing a meal with one another. And, and the disciples are there with Jesus, and they're eating together, and he's talking to them and instructing them, warning them, loving on them. He washes their feet. Uh, he demonstrates his love to them by providing this service to them. And what a sweet fellowship that would have been to be there with Jesus in the upper room. Now, when we come to the table, we're coming to a meal with Jesus. We don't have Jesus' physical presence, but what we believe is that we have his spiritual presence. Where two or three are gathered together in his name, he will be in their midst, the promise is from Scripture tells us. He's here with us today spiritually. But we have something the disciples didn't have. The disciples in the upper room did not understand the cross. They hadn't arrived at the cross yet. In fact, every time Jesus brings up the fact that he's going to die, they say, no, you're not. What are you talking about, Jesus? You're not going to die. That's crazy talk. But we understand that. And when we partake of the meal, we can think about what Jesus did for us and be reminded of it. And that he gave himself for us. He gave himself to us. And we're strengthened as we participate. When Jesus gave the disciples the bread and the cup and said, this is my body, this is my blood, did they, how much could they have understood about what he was saying there? It wasn't until afterwards, after he died, that they began to grasp the full significance of what Jesus had given them at the Lord's table. But we can sit down here today with Jesus and eat at his table and remember what he did for us and understand the significance of it and we can be changed by that experience, strengthened, encouraged to be with him. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism describes it. It asks the question, how does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts in this way? Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command he gave these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. That's what it signifies. And then secondly, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. And then it asks, who are to come to the Lord's table? Who are are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. That's exactly what our passage is telling us today. 
and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So when we come to the table, we commune with Christ at the table like the disciples did, spiritually. And Jesus will strengthen us and help us in our fight to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's why Jesus did what he did. Now the results of what Jesus did, and there's two that we have here in the passage before us. First of all, very briefly, it tells us, the end of verse 24, by his wounds you have been healed. It's not talking about physical healing. It's just another way of saying what he's already said in verse 24. Uh, He gave his body uh, on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We were wounded, broken, in darkness, in need of healing, spiritual healing. And by the wounds he suffered on the cross at Calvary, we are spiritually well, alive, growing, and enlightened. By his wounds you have been healed. Now ultimately we will be physically healed. These, these bodies we live in, we'll have perfect bodies one day, but that will be after the Lord returns. And then secondly, he tells us, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Another way of saying what he's already said in verse 24. We were straying like sheep, we were lost. But now we have returned, and we, we can have a relationship. We can commune with our shepherd and our overseer. That word overseer means watcher and protector. It's a, it's a, it's a real beautiful image of the shepherd who oversees the flock. He watches over them. He protects them. And that's who we're communing with when we come to the table. We've returned to him and here we can come and be here with him in his presence. The one who says to us, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life For the sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's who we're communing with today, the Good Shepherd, the overseer of our souls. He's keeping us and protecting us. But also, you know, the table, we remember in the past what Christ did, but we also look into the future. We, we're thinking about that day when we will physically be with the Lord, in his presence, communing, fellowshipping with him face to face. And I love how Re- Revelation 7 describes the scene. It talks about a great multitude of worshipers uh, around the throne. And he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear." From their eyes. Do you know this shepherd? Do you have a relationship with him? If you do, 
With these thoughts in mind, let us come together to the table and commune with the shepherd and overseer of our souls. If not, I want to encourage you to pray to the Lord, to ask him to reveal himself to you. Call upon the name of the Lord. Anyone who calls upon his name will be saved. And you can look at verse 24 and 25 and know that it applies to you as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and the encouragement that it gives us. And we pray now, Lord, as we come to your table, that you would, that you would bless it, that we would indeed commune with you and be strengthened in our faith. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.